0: The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capitol Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capitol Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, are from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. If you would, get out your Bibles and open to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We are systematically working through the Gospel of John, if you are just joining us. And John chapter 5 is this really remarkable chapter. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 15. You remember Jesus healed this lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And so there was a great controversy over this uh, that took place afterwards in the temple. And everybody was trying to find out who had healed this man. And in verse 15, it says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus Who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is God's holy and abiding Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. For Christ's sake, Amen. So Jesus had, remember, picked a fight with the Pharisees, with the Jews, with the religious leaders by healing a man on the Sabbath. And that man told the Jews who Jesus was, and that brought about this confrontation in the temple. And you remember, Jesus, rather than arguing over semantics about Sabbath keeping, really made a remarkable statement to them. And you'll see this statement in verse 17, if you would look at verse 17. Jesus answered them, by saying, my Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, those Jews would have known exactly what Jesus was saying, because they taught that even though the Father had originally rested on the Sabbath day, that the Father continually worked on Saturdays, on their Sabbath, upholding the universe. And so they taught this. Yes, everybody rested, but the Father works. So when Jesus says, my Father is working until now, on the Sabbath, and I am working. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that he was claiming to be God. Then you see their response. Look at verse 18. This is their response to him, his claim to deity. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So he had healed this man on the Sabbath. They were persecuting him for that, but now he has claimed to be God. And it says, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I want you to imagine Jesus is in the temple. This whole disturbance is happening in the temple. There's this huge disruption. There's a feast. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem for the feast. And Jesus is essentially put on trial in the temple. Remember, maybe in the schoolyard, you had one of those schoolyard fights? What happens in a schoolyard fight? Has anybody been in a schoolyard fight? (laughs) What happens in a schoolyard fight? Everybody gathers around, right? Everybody gathers around. And that's probably what happened here. There were probably hundreds, if not thousands of people gathering around to see and hear this confrontation and it's really a mar- remarkable what jesus says because uh I, I find this fascinating later on you remember jesus is arrested and brought to the sanhedrin and you remember what he does before the sanhedrin he's silent then they take him to pilate what does he do with pilate he's silent then to herod with Herod, what does he say? Nothing. He's silent. Then back to Pilate, nothing. Jesus' silence at that point, you ever wonder, why is he silent? Why doesn't he say anything? His silence is his judgment on them. Because here in John chapter 5, he already had laid out his defense, they had already heard his defense. They had already heard his claim to deity and his support for it. So when it comes to the final trials, his silence is him giving them over to complete judgment. And Pilate, years later, was judged. His political career was ruined. Herod, you remember what happened to him? Eaten by worms, judged. And then the Jews... 70 AD, just like Jesus prophesied, Emperor Titus comes in, wipes the city, essentially from the face of the earth. The temple dismantled. His silence at the end was a silence of judgment. But here, he speaks the word. And while the word is being spoken, there is still hope. God has not turned out the light while his word is proclaimed. And friends, that's what gives me hope, by the way, for this country, is that God has not turned out the lights yet. If God had turned out the lights, there wouldn't be any more gospel-preaching churches, would there? No. But there are still churches proclaiming the Word. And as long as there are churches proclaiming the Word of God, it is not yet time for ultimate judgment. So let's pray that God will send workers out into the harvest to proclaim his word. And that's what Jesus does here, is he lays out a defense of his deity before this massive group of people here in the temple. Uh, There's no I am statements. There's no vivid illustrations that Jesus uses. He doesn't talk about him being uh, the shepherd to the sheep. He doesn't talk about him being the vine. He doesn't talk about him being the door, Uh, nothing like that. But what he gives is the most formal, logical, systematic, and clear defense of his deity in the entire Bible, right here. J.C. Ryle said this, uh, The bishop of Liverpool, he said, "To me, it seems one of the deepest things of the Bible." Edersheim, the converted Jew, said, "What most impresses us is the majestic grandeur of Christ's self-consciousness in the presence of his enemies." Jesus lays out in crystal clear form his deity. And the support for that. Now, I want you to look very carefully, just a broad outline of the rest of John chapter 5. In verses 19 through 24, he is going to give six divine statements, okay? So, six essential claims to deity. Uh, he's going to talk about his divine will in verse 19, his divine communion with the Father in verse 20. The divine works, the miracles that he does, also in verse 20. His divine life that he imparts, that's verse 21. The divine judgment on the last day, that's verse 22 and the divine honor that he shares with the Father. That's verse 23. Now, look at verse 25 to 29. 25 to 29 is a parenthesis in Jesus' argument. It's an aside. It's an elaboration. Uh, He realized people might have questions about this teaching on the judgment. So Jesus unpacks that. So we'll be looking at that uh, in January. Then Jesus picks up his argument again in verse 30. And what Jesus does is he calls multiple witnesses to his defense. Remember, in ancient Israel, you could not um, condemn a person based on the testimony of one witness. You had to have two or three witnesses. Jesus calls four witnesses to his defense. And if you see the witnesses, they are John the Baptist in verses 33 to 35. They are his miracles, his works. That's verse 36, the witness of God the Father, that's verses 37 and 38, and then the witness of sacred scripture, that's the witness of the Old Testament scriptures, in verses 39 and 40. In verses 41 to 47, when he closes this dialogue, Jesus is going to flip the script on the Jews, and he is going to put them on trial. He's saying, look, you're putting me on trial in the temple." here's the reality. I'm the ultimate judge, and you're on trial. You put me in the dock, you're in the dock. And ultimately, you are going to face the judgment of God based on what I've said. So that's how Jesus closes this discourse. So this morning, we're going to attempt to look at these six divine statements that he makes, declaring his deity. And by the way, this is the most important message in the world. Right here. The most important message. You wonder why nations crumble, why institutions waver, why families break apart. It's because they lose the reality of this message. Everybody right now, if you look at the messaging regarding Christmas, what's everybody talking about the, real, the, the reason for Christmas? People are talking about, well, the reason for Christmas is we get to be with family. The reason for Christmas is it's a time to, to show goodwill to people. The reason for Christmas is we get to, to care for our friends and, and all these things, right? No, no, no. The reason for Christmas is that God became a man. And he came all the way down to where we are to bring us up to the Father. So these statements that Jesus makes are very important, and they're very important for you personally. And that's the angle that Jesus takes in this entire discourse. Yes, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people there but he is going to look everybody in the eye and say, look, what you do with this message hinges your eternal destiny. So pay very special attention to what I say. And that's why Jesus says, look, look how he begins in verse 19. Truly, truly, that is a statement, that is an attention-getter statement It means this is the real McCoy, what I'm about to say. Pay special attention. And and what he says next is he's going to introduce this idea of the divine will that he executes. And this is very complicated. This is high Trinitarian theology. So put on your thinking caps and look carefully at what he says. He says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus says that he, as the Son, does nothing of his own accord, but only whatever he sees the Father doing. Now, there's two very important theological distinctions or points that we need to understand based on this statement. The first is that there is one divine united will in the Godhead? There's one uni- united divine will in the Godhead. Now, we teach this is, this is Christian orthodoxy for 2,000 years, the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity states that there is one God, but yet three co equal, co eternal, co substantial persons God the Father, God the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And within the Godhead, this is, this is really, really important, follow me, there is only one divine will. There's only one divine will. So in a sense, you could say that whatever the Father does, the Son also does, and the Holy Spirit does. So whenever one person of the Trinity is acting, the other persons of the Trinity are acting with Him because there's only one divine will. Now, here's where it gets tricky. When the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became a man, He added to that divine nature human nature, right? So he added to the divine will a human will. So how many wills did the Lord Jesus have, the man Christ Jesus? Two, two wills. His deity did not encompass his humanity where he was some type of Superman just clothed with flesh. No, as the Chalcedonian Creed said, he's truly God and truly man. Well, if you're truly man, that means that you have to have a human will. So, he has a human will and a divine will. Now, throughout his ministry, his human will is always in submission to the divine will, right? He is sent by the Father, and he submits himself As the Son of God, He submits His will to this divine will of the Father. So here's the important thing that you need to note because some people have taught that Jesus is uh, lower than God or less than God because of statements like this that He is doing uh, nothing of His own accord but only what He sees the Father doing. Arius and many other heretics made that mistake. But don't make that mistake this morning because what Jesus is saying, is actually a statement of deity. He's pointing to the fact that there is that one divine will that he is marching to. That he does everything exactly according to that will because he is God. So if you look down at verse 30, Jesus makes a similar statement which helps us understand this. He says, I can do nothing on my own as i hear i judge and my judgment is just because i seek not my own will so that's his human will right but the will of him who sent me that he is pursuing that will of the father in john 8:28 it says jesus said that when you have lifted up the son of man then you will know that i am he and that i am nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And that's why Jesus says, look at this statement there in verse 19. He says, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What this statement means is that the Father and the Son act simultaneously. it's, It's a coincident event when the Son acts. So, we think father and son the son does likewise. We think the son is just copying the father. Like this week I walked into my closet and Patrick my 2-year-old had pulled all my ties down from the little tie rack and had draped one of them on and said, "Daddy, I'm a preacher like you." So he's he's mimicking me, right? He's copying me. He's trying to do what his father does. It's, all little boys basically do that that 's not how Jesus is doing likewise the works of the father they 're simultaneous works because he has that divine will within him, so whatever the father 's will is, Jesus is doing it at that moment and that 's why john uh, one eighteen it 's one of the most profound verses uh, in the entire new testament Jesus or John, rather, says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Jesus has disclosed God. How? By carrying out this divine will. I told you this was going to be difficult. Now, the second thing that we need to understand about what Jesus is te- teaching us about the Trinity is that even though every member of the Trinity is co-eternal and co-equal, in the economy of redemption, each member of the Trinity plays a unique role. So the Father plans redemption. The Son is sent to accomplish redemption. And you remember who the Son sends after His ministry? The Son sends the Holy Spirit to Apply redemption. So it's fitting that the eternally begotten Son be the one who is sent. The Father could not have been the one who is sent. The Father is the one who sins. And it is fitting that the Holy Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son. And these truths right here are the deep mystery of our salvation, the doctrine of the Trinity. The the moment that you depart from the doctrine of the Trinity, you lose redemption. And you lose the evangelical gospel. Just go up to Boston and look at all the Unitarian buildings now that used to be congregational churches. The moment that you say Jesus is something less than God, you lose that power of salvation. Because if Jesus is not God then he does not have the power to bring us all the way up to heaven. You see that? If Jesus is merely a man, he's just like you and me, and we can't bridge that gap to eternity. But So Jesus had to be God to bridge that gap and bring us all the way to where God is, and that's why right now he's at the right hand of the Father, proof that he did that. But if he didn't become a man, then he hasn't come all the way to us. To bring us up to where he is, so that didn 't help us either, and that 's the, the wonderful mystery of the incarnation is that he had to be both. He had to be both man and God, but we must preserve this divine will, this, this matter of his deity next Jesus dives deeper into this Trinitarian reality. He lifts the veil even further as if this wasn't complicated enough for us. He then talks about his divine communion with the Father. Look at verse 20. He says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that himself is doing. There is a unique relationship that the Father shares with the Son, and Jesus says that the Father loves the Son Phileio, um, that is a relational love. It is a love uh, that a father or a mother has for a child, uh, not a love of logic. Um, agapo or agape love um, is a love of choice that you are choosing to love someone. That's not the word Jesus uses. He's saying that the Father uh, phileios me, that the Father loves me by the essence of who I am. John 3.35 says that for the more Father sermons, loves the Son information and has given and events. all things Check out into our website His capitalcommunitychurch.com. So com. it is this deep and abiding, eternal, loving communion that the Father and the Son share, and I might add the Holy Spirit. It was out of this love that God created the world, and God created mankind, because God himself is a relational being. You see, if God is not triune, and and God is just merely impersonal, God would have never created the universe. God would never have created people to commune with. He wouldn't because he's not a communal God. He's not a relational God, but he is a relational God. He's always been in relationship in the doctrine of the Trinity and with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says, and this is so remarkable, in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, this is John seventeen twenty six. he's praying to the Father, and he said, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Do you understand the implications of what Jesus is praying there? He's saying this eternal love that I have shared with you, the Father, I am going to bring them in, to that love. And I am going to be in them, and you are going to be in them, and they are going to share in this communion that we have. And friends, that is, that is the high point, the high watermark of real, genuine Christianity. Christianity at its heart is communion and intimacy with God. And the mark of the mature believer is that you begin to press into that communion and that intimacy and that you experientially understand that communion as the Holy Spirit bears witness in your heart that you are a child of God and that the Father loves you. That is the communion of the believer, and that is the communion that Jesus has introduced you to through his work, and that the Holy Spirit is now applying. And as a believer, one of, the, one of the, these marks of maturity is that you don't need endless entertainment. You don't need to turn on the television or a sitcom That you can get down on your knees and spend time with God. And you enjoy it. It's not a chore. It's a delight. Because you have tasted of the goodness of the Lord. And you've encountered that intimacy. And once you taste that, once once you experience that, there's no going back. And so... I want to ask you this morning Does that describe your life? Or are you just skipping in the shallows? Have you entered into this communion with God? You see, Christianity isn't just fire insurance for hell, it's to know God, to know Christ and Him crucified, and to have fellowship with Him. Next, Jesus elaborates on his divine works. So he's talked about his divine communion, his divine will, now his divine works. Look at the second part of verse 20. He says, "The Father is working through Christ uh, to do these miracles." So he says, "In greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel." By works, if you circle that word works, Jesus is certainly talking about his miracles. So Jesus is very simply saying, uh, you think it's great that I healed the layman by the pool? You are going to see greater miracles than this, that the Father is going to show me to do. And this will be done so that you may marvel that you may be amazed you are going to see remarkable things and you remember the rest of john we see jesus multiply the loaves and walk on water in john chapter 6 we see him heal the man born blind in john 8 and then in john 10 he raises lazarus from the dead most importantly he himself will also rise from the dead You might ask, or if you're in a conversation with someone and you're talking about the miracles that Jesus did, you might be asked, well, what significance does that have for us as people alive in the 21st century? After all, were you there to see the miracle? Were you there to see Jesus walk on water? Were you there to see him heal the lame man by the pool of Bethesda? Oh, no, you weren't. So why does it matter? Why does it matter? I mean, wasn't that a long time ago? I mean, what what's the point? And people hear these stories, and the reality is, is most just dismiss them as myth or explain it away that Jesus was able to do something that appeared to be a, a sign or a miracle, that Jesus lapsed into unconsciousness and just was able to move the stone away some, at some point with his disciples and then walked out of the tomb. You know, people explain these miracles or, or unexplain them, I should say, in, in different ways. But ultimately, here, here's the reality even when Jesus was performing this, these miracles, most of the people who saw them didn't believe. Most of the people who saw the miracle, think about this, there's hundreds, thousands of people, they witness this man, lame, 38 years. They see him walking. They don't believe. So, yeah, the, the miracles are important, but the important thing about the miracles is that you see the sign in the miracle, And for that, you need to have spiritual eyes in your heart. John says, at the very end of John, he says, These things are written, the signs. These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, you might have life in His name. The signs are always meant to point you to the reality that is Christ Himself. The signs are important, but ultimately people saw the signs and didn't believe. But the signs do point to the reality that He is God. How so, you might ask? Don't demons also, can't, aren't there supernatural powers? Can't demons also perform miracles? People said that to Jesus. They said, you have a demon. You're performing miracles by, by the works of Beelzebub, by Satan, Right? Now, here's the kicker. Jesus says there's some miracles in particular that no one else can do but God, and that is to impart divine life. So he says, look, not only do I do these, these signs, which some are going to attribute to Satan or which some are going to disbelieve, but I also impart divine life, and that's those are some of the signs that he did. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is very important because only God has the power to give life. No one else has the power to impart life. Second Kings 5-7 says that God has the power to give life. No one else does. Satan doesn't have the power to impart life. And this is one of those realities, and I'm sure you've been at funerals before, where you stood in front of the casket, and you just said, God, I I wish that you would just raise this person up, that you would impart life to this person. I remember when I did the funeral for my niece, uh, Jane Brogy, who died in her sleep right before she was two years old. And just standing before that little casket and just saying, God, I pray that you will give this little girl life. But he's the only one who can do that. You know, we would do anything to trade our life for that person and say, if I could just crawl in that casket and give that person life, I would. But you can't. You don't have that power. I don't have that power. But God does. And Jesus is saying here that he also does. He has this power to give life. And throughout his ministry, he did this over and over and over again. He raises the dead son of a widow in Luke seven thirty-two. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead in Matthew 9, 18. He raises Lazarus from the dead in John 10, and he himself will be raised from the dead. Now, one point of hope here. On the last day, Jesus will raise all of his saints from the dead. He will raise, if you've trusted in Christ, and he gives you life, he will give you literal life on that last day, and you will be raised up. And that's why Christians have always, this has been the practice for 2,000 years, this is why we've always buried our dead. We bury our dead in the hope of the resurrection, that Jesus will return and bring life to our mortal bodies and raise them up. Um, this is what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. You could just study this whole chapter. and um, It's really remarkable. But he says, this is verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in Weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, verse 45, Paul says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So Adam brings death after God gave him life. Christ brings life, literal life, to all who trust in him and believe in him. And his resurrection is proof of that. That's why Paul calls the resurrection of Christ the first fruits. You know, the first fruits is a farmer goes and picks the first apple that comes from the tree. And it's, it's the first fruit of the whole harvest. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of the entire harvest of the church, which will occur on that last day. So Jesus has this power to give divine life. And next, he says also, I have the authority to execute divine judgment. Look at verse 22. He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Throughout the Old Testament, again and again and again, God is referred to as judge. And I'll just give you a sample of cross-references Genesis 18.25, Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. The psalmist says in Psalm 9.7, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Psalm fifty verse 6, the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. And then Psalm 96, 13, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So, God is declared throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Everybody knew that God would judge the world in the end. Yet, Jesus says here that the Father on the last day, is actually going to judge no one. It's going to be God the Son who is the judge. It's an awesome thought, isn't it? That we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will execute judgment. When I went to Corinth, right in the middle of the city, they have a massive, what they call a bema seat. And the Bema seat is, is wider, or may, probably a little wider than this entire platform, and it's, it's about this tall. It's about probably eight feet tall. And the, the magistrate, the judge, uh, would stand up on the Bema seat, and then you, if you were being judged, would come stand on the ground in front of the Bema seat. And then the judge would give the verdict on you, and you would be standing looking up to the judge, awaiting the pronouncement, awaiting the verdict. What Jesus is saying here is that he is going to be the one on that last day. A man, the God-man, Christ, is going to be judging everyone in righteousness, every single person. This statement made a massive impression on the apostles who were standing there. On James and John, Peter, Andrew. Um, Peter, whenever he would go preach, he would always talk first about the final judgment of Christ. Everywhere he went, in Cornelius' house, when he was preaching to Cornelius, He said this, he said, and he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. He is going to be judge. No wrong will be excused on that day. Every evil will be lighted upon and every wrong will be condemned. So, if you've been wronged, don't, don't take vengeance for yourself. What does God say? Vengeance is mine. Jesus will execute that vengeance, that judgment on that last day. And the question is: is, do you live your life in light of that judgment? Do you live your life prepared to face the Lord Jesus Christ and stand before him? the great white throne, and are you prepared to hear his pronouncement on your life? Are you living frivolously, aimlessly, whimsically, worldly? Now here's getting to the good news. Jesus says, yes, I'm going to judge. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I came to make a provision for you in that judgment. And here he declares, if you look in verse 23, he talks about his divine honor. He basically says, look, if you honor me on that last day, the Father will honor you. I will honor you. So let's look at this very quickly. He says, Verse 23, he says, I will sit in judgment that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That word honor, tamao, means to fill the heaviness or the weightiness of who Christ is and respond accordingly. And Jesus is essentially here flipping the script on his hearers. He's saying to them, look, you're charging me with blaspheming God. You're charging me with dishonoring God by healing this man on the Sabbath. Here's the thing. You're claiming that you honor God. If you don't honor me, if you don't worship me, then you aren't honoring God. You're, you're the ones who are actually blaspheming God because you aren't honoring me properly. So the Father has appointed the Son to be honored and to be glorified just as he is. Let me give you a couple cross-references. John fifteen twenty three. Jesus says, "'Whoever hates me hates my Father also.'" John 12, 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So if you honor the Son, you honor the Father. In Vatican II, which was what the Roman Catholic communion um, stated, and this was in the 1960s when they came out in Vatican II, They said that you could be saved as an anonymous Christian. In other words, you don't have to know Jesus, but as long as you live a moral life that you give credence to God, you might not have heard Jesus. You might uh, not have a relationship with Jesus. You might not have ever heard the gospel. You you might never even uh, have, have any idea who he is. They said that you could still be saved by Jesus, even though you hadn't ever honored Him. And friend, that is a lie straight from hell. To go to heaven, you must honor Christ. God says, if you don't honor my son, then you do not honor me. And true faith always leads to an honoring and worshiping of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the essence of true faith. True faith propels you because you see Christ for who He is, so it propels you to see Christ, to honor Him, and then give glory to God. The real believer has a weightiness. This is the tamao. This is this weightiness, this heaviness on her life, on His life of Christ and His redemption for her and for Him. And they desire then to honor Christ. There's so many people in the American church that signed a card or came forward or now texted the the pastor on their phone, said, yeah, I believe this. But then you know what? They walk off and they have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus says, look, if you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. Forget about it. James says, faith without works is dead. If you you claim to have a type of faith that doesn't honor Christ, it's no faith at all. Even the demons have that type of faith. True evangelical faith always leads to an honoring of Christ, which then honors the Father. So now we come to this invitation. Look at verse 24, this glorious invitation. Jesus says, yes, These are the stark realities. But let me tell you the good news. Let me tell you the truth that I came to deliver. This message. Again, truly, truly, pay attention. Pay attention, all of you. I say to you that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. Wow. Notice again this emphasis on Jesus' words. It's not seeing the miracle that saves, it's hearing the words and believing His words that saves. And Jesus is talking about hearing the word. Of course, they're all listening, but He's talking about hearing in the heart. He's talking about hearing His message in the heart. Hearing with your soul and believing that He is indeed God the Son sent by the Father to carry out this mission. And Jesus says, the moment that you hear in your heart and believe that you have present tense, eternal life. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then, Notice what Jesus says. If you believe this, he says, he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. This is so profound. Listen very carefully right here. What Jesus is saying is is that you can know right now what your verdict is on the last day. Okay? This is so amazing. Um, You can know that you have a verdict of what the Reformers called justification or righteousness, when you stand before Christ at that Bema seat on that last day. You can know that right now. Because if you've believed and you have eternal life, Jesus says you have passed from judgment and into the realm of life. And so when Jesus, all that's left at the judgment, all that will be there is the pronouncement you're not going into the judgment when you stand before Christ. You won't be shaking, wondering, what is he going to say? Well, I, hope he, I hope he declares me righteous. You won't be wondering that. You will step into that judgment with boldness, knowing that he will declare you righteous. Because you have passed from this realm. It's talking about this sphere from death to life. And you pass from that in the here in now. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus now. So do you know this reality now? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is who he said he is, that the signs he did pointed to the fact that he is God, and as the God-man, that he paid the penalty for your sins on the cross And because he is God, and because he had never sinned, the resurrection could not contain him, so he can give life to all whom he will. Do you believe that? Do you believe that with all your heart? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you have, then you know that you have passed out of judgment and into this sphere of life, and there's no better message in the world. You can know this walking out of this church building. You can skip to lunch. Or if you're a woman, you can skip over to the brunch. Because your destiny is certain. Wow. What a glorious thing to be a Christian. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived for us, who came and delivered this message with such certainty, with such authority that he is the son of God who came to live for us and die for us. And Lord, we, we confess this with all of our hearts and we trust you as our Lord and Savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at CapitalCommunityChurch.com.